First, we take up the major category that involves clauses that begin with this little word. Now, on your handout, I hope it's clear, that's a rough breathing mark and an acute accent. Hina, or hina, depending on how you're pronouncing Yoda. It's a Greek subordinating conjunction. It begins a dependent clause. And it is variously translated, depending on what it's doing in the sentence. But for now, just think of it as that, in order that, in order for. Okay? So this little word is a very common word in Greek sentences. Okay? And it introduces dependent clauses with various meanings. And that's part of the part of the complexity of the deal. But let's go on then to the next page. We're magically scrolling down. Clauses that begin with hina. All right? Now, older Greek, sometimes called classical Greek, used clauses that start with hina. Now, by the way, every time you see a, oh, every time you see hina, right? And then it's going to head a clause, and that clause is going to have a verb, main verb. Every time, that verb is going to be a subjunctive mood verb. Every clause that is headed by hina will have a subjunctive verb in it. Might be present subjunctive, might be aorist subjunctive. Might be a participle thrown in there too to help out, but the, the chief verb of that little clause will be a subjunctive mood verb. Older Greek used clauses that start with hina with a very focused and very specific meaning. It was very limited. And the New Testament, that's actually the most common use, we'll get to it in a second, that uh, Koine or New Testament Greek uh, employs. But, and now here we're going to actually revert back to the infinitive for a second, the simple infinitive. Koine Greek has expanded the different uses that hina clauses can express, and they've expanded them in the direction of the simple infinitive. Now. When you learned chapter 16, did any of you actually put to use that mnemonic device in the cell book, SOPER? It's just a memory device, and it's just the six different things that an infinitive can express. And again, this is just from that workbook. There's nothing magic about this. But SOPER, which is not actually a word, but it is a mnemonic device, just here's what that stands for. Simple, that is non-articular infinitives. No article, just the infinitive, right? It can be the subject of an impersonal verb. So this is review. Like our friend day. Anybody remember what day means or die? It is necessary. Now what is necessary? It's always going to be an infinitive. Yeah, to die is necessary. To be raised is necessary. To seek the lost is necessary. See, whenever you see that little word day or die, I guess that's how Vels would pronounce it, then it'll have a subject and very often that subject will be an infinitive because the infinitive is a verbal noun. Right? So it can function as the subject of an impersonal verb. It can also be the object of a verb, a simple infinitive. I want a sandwich, I want the truth, I want to know. See? In a construction like that, the infinitive to know is just the object of I want. Okay? A simple infinitive can be standing in apposition. 
to a demonstrative pronoun. That is, this is life, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John 16, whatever. All right, John 17, whatever, I think. So an infinitive can stand in apposition to a demonstrative pronoun. This is all review, by the way. If it's feeling a little fuzzy, then it's just in chapter 16. Okay? Infinitives very often can express the purpose of the main verb. I went to the store to buy bread. This is one of the most common uses in English and also in Greek. Infi simple infinitives can express purpose. Okay? Simple infinitives can be, here's the fancy schmancy term, epexegetical, just means explanatory, to certain nouns. Certain nouns in Greek and in English want to be explained with an infinitive. I have authority, well, what kind of authority? To forgive sins. I have, he is worthy. Worthy in what regard? To receive honor and glory and wisdom and blah, 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 right? Again, this is all in chapter 16. And when an infinitive is preceded by hosta, again, this is chapter 16, it expresses result. So we've got subject, object, apposition, purpose, epexegetical result, and that's why Cell put this together, soper, okay? Now, note this last sentence. And we'll point this out. Some of the uses of hinna clauses are more common than others. But hinna clauses can do all of these things. They can function the way a simple infinitive functions. Okay? So you see a hinna clause, and in that clause will be a subjunctive mood verb with a subject maybe in an object and normal stuff. Okay? But you have to kind of look at the rest of the sentence around it to know what that hinna clause is expressing. Now, some of these are more common than others, and I've indicated that on the next page of the handout. So let's go there as we scroll down in our high-tech manner. It's all good. All right. Let's take a look. This is supposed to illustrate uh, that prior page. So we have clauses that start with hinna and the so-called six uses of the simple infinitive as a parallel. Now this first one is somewhat frequent. You might want to underline these notations here. The somewhat frequent, pretty frequent, eh, especially in John, Oh, here's capital letters. This one must be important. See? So, so take, take those little glosses that I've put there into account. Um, but look at here. Check it out. Here's our little impersonal verb, day. Right? It is necessary. Now, in English, the way you'd normally translate it, the way the Bible versions read is, it is necessary that we receive the truth. Now, look, look at the hint of clause here. Here's our little friend Hina. So you see, as soon as you see that, somewhere, what kind of verb is going to be following? Subjunctive. It's going to be a subjunctive verb. So you know it, right? And lo and behold, it's kind of an odd phrase, isn't it? Lo and behold. Is that from the King James or something? You do. Here's a, somebody parse this verb. See this verb form right here? Labo man. Somebody parse that for me. What's that stem? You recognize that on a good day? 
Good. Arist of Lombano, right? So arist, here's the subjunctive, men, active, first, plural, right? Stem, connecting vowel, ending. Wendell? Yes? And I guess my question before you go too much farther is, is when or why do you use the kind of clause a different way of saying it? Just the same as in any other language, you have more than one way of saying something just for a variety. You know? It's cheap. Somebody, who's supposed to say it? It's, it's due to the hysterical development of the Greek language. Yeah. Right. No, not more meaning. Nope. They're equivalent expression. Right. So uh, beginning students of any language would wish, of course, that there was only one way to say something. Unfortunately, there is x is greater than or equal to 1. Right. Yeah. That's just, it's kind of style. Right. And by the way, Veltz has probably talked about this. Uh, Hellenistic Greek or Koine Greek, the kind of Greek that the New Testament writers participate in is very much uh, affected by non-native Greeks speaking it. You know? And the language has gotten less subtle, well that's good, and sloppier. So these uses, by the way, you would never see these uses of hinna clauses in older, more classical Greek writers. This is the classical meaning of a hinna clause is that it expresses purpose, almost exclusively. But the New Testament writers are Jews, right? They're all Semites. And they've now Greek has been spoken for several hundred years in and around Israel, but they're not they're they're speaking it as a second language and writing it as a second language. Quite capably, but that's part of the explanation. Please. Ooh, boy, Velt should be here for that. I think sort of 4th and 5th century BC is regarded as the golden era of, you know, the classical, the Athenian authors, the playwrights and when is Arist Aristotle is the tutor of uh, Alexander the Great, right? And he dies and so, you know, 4th century, 3rd century. Would that be about the same as the Homeric? That's much earlier. Yeah, Homer is 8th, 9th century, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What I know about Homeric Greek would rattle around in a very small container. <laughs> I mean, personally, but it's quite different. Quite different. And that classical Greek would be different from the New Testament Greek. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, New Testament Greek is, again, much simpler, less subtle. Um, you get a lot more prepositions to help you out. Um, Again, you get kind of some, some overlap between different constructions like the Hina clause and the infinitive. Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of change. By the way, Dr. Veltz has written long ago, well, back in the 80s, uh, a really great article that we always make our PhD students read. No, we, do we make them read it? Yeah, we make them read it. Uh, it's called The Language of the New Testament. It's about a 90-page article in which he describes some of the um, changes and developments in New Testament Greek. Say nine or ninety. Ninety. A book, I know. Article. <laughs> a biblion. A biblion micron. 
It's, it's a, a, it, there's, there is a, uh, there's a scholarly series. Uh, it's, oh, there it is right there. Okay, uh, Professor Lewis has it, right. For $5, you can borrow it. it <laughs> it's, it's published also in a series of books. It's got a German title, ANRW, Aufstieg und Niedergang der Römischen Welt, which is Rise and Fall of the Roman World. And it's in one of those volumes, yeah. No, his is in English and quite a bit of Greek. Yeah, right. Yeah, but yeah. So, really, I mean, I, uh, you know, it's actually. I know you don't always feel this way, but you're really fortunate. Don't hurt me, to have Dr. Vells as a teacher. I know you don't always feel that way, but that's just the nature of the deal. But he's really good. See, I mean, I'm awesome, but he's. <laughs> He is really, really good. Yeah. Well, and he's a product of the old system. You know, he took Latin and, and probably Greek in high school. See, and then he was trained. See, so by the time he hit seminary, he'd had like five years of Greek or something. You know, which is pretty much like you. You've had five weeks, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, pretty well equal footing, right? I've got one foot. He's got two. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I've got a toenail. Right, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So at any rate, you see a henna clause occasionally, somewhat frequent, it's not all the time, as the subject of an impersonal verb. Now this is an awkward translation. That we receive the truth is necessary. What you'll normally see is it is necessary that we receive the truth. This is called a dummy subject. That's what the grammarians call it. You just supply the it and then you fill it in the back. Okay. But that's an example. Now you could have, right here, you, instead of hina labomen, you could have an infinitive. You could just have labesthai. To receive the truth is necessary. See, they're equivalent. This was kind of to your question. Well, they're completely equivalent. There's no difference in meaning. Okay? Yeah, oh, that's right. Well, you could have an accusative uh, we pronoun for an infinitive as well. Yeah, you could do the same thing. Greek. Yeah, you could, you could have an on, ongoing force. You could have a present subjunctive or a present infinitive if you had a different construction. Right, that's right. The only difference being that we receive the truth versus to receive the truth. That's the way we might do it in English. Exactly. Exactly. And only the that translation would just kind of preserve the henna in your own head and ear. Right. Right. Okay? All right, now here's, here's an example of a henna clause used as an object of a verb. And I've used our friend Thello. It's fairly frequent, okay? Um, a lot of this stuff, you just kind of see it as you go along. You're, you're in, uh, you know, uh, Pauline epistles and Acts, you know, EN 106. And you're kind of, there's a class translation, you're translating along, and then you just see it. I mean, you know, you just kind of encounter these things. Um, but again, here's a henna clause, so I've kept the same Subjunctive verb, just to make it easier, that we receive the truth. Now, here's the main verb. We desire or we want. Now, it's a little awkward. What do we desire? We desire that we receive the truth. Now, you could just have an infinitive. That would be simpler to translate, but it would be the same force. After certain verbs, especially verbs of wishing, wanting, commanding, 
those kinds of verbs will tend to take a henna clause as an object. Matthew does this fairly frequently. Yeah, Newt? It doesn't help you at all. No, no, I'm, this is from another Greek, this is from an earlier Greek incarnation when, when I taught chapter 16, I taught them to memorize Soper. There's no difference whatsoever. So this is just illustrating the uses of the simple infinitive. So don't think that you have to go back to chapter 16 and say, oh, I've got to remember it with Soper. Don't do that. Don't do that at all. So, yeah, Rob and then Guy. Oh, good. That's okay. The of Excellent. Exactly. Even apart from the memory device, if I'm looking at a phrase like object two, number two, object, do I suspect that, okay, it's in a clause, subjunctive, it's a dependent clause, is it an object, is it a subject? Do I even do that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just like with an infinitive, once you've sort of figured out essentially how to translate it, it's always a good question to say, how is it functioning? How is this part of the sentence functioning? Right. And the same with henna clauses. Right. Absolutely. Guess what? You'll take EN 101 and we'll ask you this. We'll say, what kind of a henna clause is that? What is it expressing? And then, of course, you'll know because you have the Holy Spirit, right? And he reveals these things to you. But he always works through... He always works through means, and the means in this case is really hard study and lots of practice. So, guy? Okay. What? Yes, the Christian God is the God of compassion. The academic God is the God of justice. Speak, Lord, thy servant is listening. A little louder so they can hear you. Because it's an English equivalent. Yep. Or as they say in uh, higher education circles, yippee doodle. Okay? Here's another illustration. John likes to talk this way. Not all the authors do. In apposition, it's always in apposition to a demonstrative pronoun. This or that word. This or that. Right? This is, oops, no, action, no rough breathing. This is life. Hina labamentain aletheon. That we receive the truth or to receive the truth. But it's explaining this. It's always simple infinitives and henna clauses can be used to explain this or that. It's always a demonstrative pronoun. It's in chapter 16. Now this is the most common one. And you'll see this all over the New Testament. Purpose, very frequent. And this is the classical meaning that I referred to earlier in these impressive high-tech presentations. Ha kerix. Oh, let's read that. We haven't read Greek out. Let's read Greek together. Allons. Here we go. Ha kerix erketai hina labomen tain aletheon. All right. The herald is coming. And why is he coming? In order that we may receive the truth. There's a double henna clause in probably the most well-known Bible verse, John 3.16. God so, which is why you haven't had it yet, because <laughs> we haven't had henna yet. God so loved the world with the result that he gave his only begotten son 
in order that hina, everyone who believes in him, then you have a negative and a positive, might not perish but have everlasting life. Guess what? Those two verbs are subjunctive, and it tells the purpose of the giving of the son. See? Now, I mentioned this once before. This actually sometimes, voila, less sermon outline. You know? You know, there's a lot of talk today, brothers and sisters, about Jesus. And people have different understandings of, of his purpose. Why did Jesus come? Why did the Father give Jesus? Was it to kind of teach us how to live? Well, there's an element of truth to that, but, but that's really a big lie. Our reading today, this familiar verse from John 3.16, God's word shows us that the purpose of the giving of the Son was this. See? I mean, it's right there. It's like, don't miss the obvious. See? And, it's and, now, and now remember, if you then say, the original Greek says, I'll be behind you in the pulpit and I'll stab you in the leg. <laughs> right? You don't need to do that. See, leave that part in the pulpit. I mean, in the office. But the point is... That's exactly the reaction I want. That's good. So you leave that part in the office, but see, that way your sermon, I mean, it's not always that neat and tidy, but man, sometimes it's just glorious. Yeah. You have May in this translation. Yeah. Why, why does May appear here and not just in any of the other Because this was, is expressing purpose. And it's just an English problem. By the way, it gets even worse than this. If this were a pastime, the herald came... In English, we'd say, in order that we might. That's just English. It'd be wrong if, for a purpose. If it's used as a purpose, it'd be wrong to simply say, in order that we receive the truth. That would be just great. That would be just great. Yep. You don't have, I don't think in standard English usage that you have to use may or might. I think, you, I think it's normally used, but you don't have to. And if you translate it that way, everybody around you would know that you had understood it correctly. Yep, Devin? This translation of doing it with like an infinitive translation to say to receive as yeah. opposed to that yeah. to receive. Uh-huh. You're sure we wouldn't be counted wrong because we didn't know the difference between Well, especially not in Velt, because I know in some of his sentences that's the way he does it in the back. This this is kind of Guy's question, right? Yeah. No, you could you could translate it as an English simple infinitive. Now, I typically don't, just to preserve in my own mind the difference between a simple infinitive and a henna clause, right? But they are semantically, according to their meaning, they are the same. Okay? Yeah, Wendell? No, no, it's not ironclad. No. The herald is coming in order that we receive the truth, but in our unbelief we turned away and we didn't receive the truth. No, see, it's a purpose. And by the way, remember that the, subjunct the subjunctive is about the future, sort of? Well, purposes are in the future, right? That's why it's appropriate. Now, it depends on whose purpose it is, right? God's purposes generally get carried out, right? My purposes sometimes don't, which is 
not infrequently a good thing. <laughs> so it depends on whose purpose it is. Okay? All right, there's two more. Do, are they at the bottom of the page? Is that why I'm not seeing them? Yeah. Okay. Here, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Keep those doggies scrolling. Epexegetical, this is somewhat frequent. This is, again, just like chapter 16, it's after certain nouns or adjectives. Here we've got, oops, oh no. I just turned something off. Okay, well, somebody fix that, will you? And, uh, <laughs> pushed it wrong button. No, yeah, right there. Oh, oh. This is on. Let's see. You know, yeah, just don't worry about it too much, Kev. Um, the, uh, again, some adjectives, some nouns sort of want to be explained with an infinitive. Like, the examples are authority, authority to do something, right? Worthy to do something. And just as an infinitive can explain that, a hint of clause can do the same thing. So there's just an example there. And then finally, in number six, uh, please note, this is actually very rare. It, uh, a classical author would have never, ever done this. That sometimes, when the context demands it, and I've actually given you a Bible verse, although I didn't give you the Greek, because uh, there was some stuff in there that we haven't had. Um, remember the story of the man born blind? in John 9. Is it back? Oh. You get an A. I don't care what Belt says. You get an A. That's right. That's right. You get a really, a really good parsonage and a BMW. So. That's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, really. Yeah, as if I had the power to do anything. That's right. Okay, good. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've already told you about my favorite technology, bio-optically organized knowledge. Yeah, right. So here, let's see. Toss me that pointer, will you? Yeah. I know, it'll do it again, yeah. Note this very rare. Hina clauses can express result. There's a fine distinction there sometimes. But when Jesus says to the disciples, the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now think about that. Now this is their perspective, not Jesus' perspective. But it's hard to imagine that they intend to say that either the parents or the man sinned for the purpose that he would be born blind. But in that context, it does make sense who sinned, this man or his parents, with the result that he was born blind. See what I'm saying? Okay, now so, so rarely... A clause headed by hina with a subjunctive verb can express result. But it is, to repeat, rare, and you should only take it that way when the context demands it. And of course, Jesus goes on to reject their theology entirely. Right? He says it was neither this man nor his parents, but, <clears throat> and this actually might even trouble modern Americans more, he says that the man was born blind in order to bring glory to God and that the works of God might be displayed in him. Isn't that kind of like, uh, and I'm probably going to, if you would like, uh, I hope I don't like, I hope I'm not wrong here, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. The disciples have a theology of glory. Right. Right. Um, see, that other theology, we don't like that other theology either because it means that God's purposes might entail bad things happening to good people, to use the terrible title of a book that was popular some years ago. See? Which, which, by the way, is why there's, you know, there are soapboxes all around here, theological soapboxes. Which is why Jesus teaches us to pray not first for what we want or even what we think we want, but that he teaches us to pray first for the hallowing of God's name and for the coming of his reign and for the doing of his will. Okay. And, and I, I actually think that if we would really learn to pray the Our Father, not just as a prayer among other prayers, but as the pattern for all of our prayers. See, that would shrink us down considerably. And that's kind of where we belong. See? Now, check, check it out. This is technical language. God, big. <laughs> Me, small. Hatheos, megas. Right? Ego, Mekros, or if you're a girl, Mekra. If you're a table, Mekra, right? <laughs> Mekron, whatever. Okay, that's enough of that. Um, hinna clauses can be used in these six ways, but two of them are especially frequent. Object and purpose. Number two, and in this lineup, number two and number four. Okay? Questions about that? Other than, <laughs> what do you mean questions about it? I can't even wrap my mind around it yet. What do you mean I have questions? Yeah, Mark? I was going to say, I was looking at my New Testament. I think it's chapter, uh, verse 2, where that quote is actually. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, as opposed to 9 1. Yeah. Okay, well, it wouldn't be the last time I have a typo. So, good. I appreciate that. Help keep me humble, eh? Good man. Okay. Let's uh, go to the next page. So that's our first category, actually. Now buckle up, because this gets harder. I'll be frank with you, whoever Frank is. This gets considerably more complex, but we'll walk through it together. 